I'm always in a constant state of evolution. And, um, you know, I think Dream Defenders is also an organism, you know, that is constantly evolving and shifting and becoming a new thing. And um, where Dream Defenders is gonna go is gonna continue to grow. This is Healing Justice, a podcast bridging conversations at the intersections of collective healing and social change. I'm your host, Kate Warning, and this week we are talking with Philip Agnew, who is the former executive director of the Dream Defenders and a leader in the movement for Black Lives. We're talking about his recent leadership transition in 2018 out of his role with Dream Defenders and what it's like to evolve in public. I love this conversation. I've listened back a bunch of times, and there is so much here. I'll try to tell you some of it. We're talking about movement celebrity culture, the limitations of highly visible leadership, what it means to have a clear leftist ideology, what Philip would have done differently in his own leadership transition, collective responsibility for mental health and the limitations of the self-help paradigm, and finally, his own name change to Umi Sela and then back to Philip. So Phil co-founded the Dream Defenders in 2012 after the murder of Trayvon Martin. And a lot of you probably will recognize his voice or already know who he is as he's been really a major spokesperson in the movement for Black Lives since that moment. And so now that he's transitioned from his role as co-director at Dream Defenders, he's traveling the country, training and organizing in places where the movement hasn't touched, as he puts it. He's also the co-founder of Miami's Smoke Signal Studio, where we also recorded this interview. It's a community-based, radical, artistic space that he co-founded with his partner, Aja Monet, who's a poet, an amazing leader. And Smoke Signals is a space where those invested in using art, sound, and music as a meeting place for transformation and liberation can come to create together. They throw amazing, enormous parties, have a recording studio, and even have a Reiki healing station in the backyard. You can find out more at smokesignalstudio.com or check out our Instagram at Healing Justice. This week we'll be sharing photos from when I was there visiting. You can also hear Philip and, uh, and Aja Monet give this incredible talk together that just came out this spring. It was at TEDx Women, and it's called A Love Story About the Power of Art as Organizing. The link to that video is in the show notes for this episode. So quick podcast-related announcement, y'all. Accessibility time. June is a month where we are doing an incredible access power-up here at the podcast. A big shout-out to Melanin Collective, who met with us to talk through how we can make our website more accessible to people using screen readers. We are beginning the study of how to transform our social media to become more accessible. You'll see that transform more over the entire summer. But the biggest project we've taken on is that we have been transcribing all of our episodes. We have over 90 now. And huge shout out to our access team coordinator, Erica Wolf, without whom none of this would be happening, um, who has taken on the logistical lift and coordination and training and emotional support and learning and skill building with our incredible team of volunteer transcriptionists um, to be able to get these transcripts done. Now, transcripts are su super important because um, folks who are hard of hearing or deaf can use them to actually access the content of the podcast. But a lot of other people have many, many reasons that they prefer to or need to use transcripts to access this content. So disability justice being an absolutely central foundational tenet of healing justice, we feel really bad that we haven't had transcripts up until this point. Um, it's absolutely essential. We're really sorry we haven't had them from the beginning. Just like the excuse that's always given for not being able to meet accessibility needs, it was because of capacity, but that doesn't uh, make it any better or more understandable for people who haven't been able to access these resources, right? So enormous shout out to the over 86 people who signed up for our volunteer access team 36 of you showed up to a training and actually got trained in culturally competent um, 
disability justice-centered transcription, which is all from people's knowledge that together as a team we compiled from online resources and asked our friends and asked people with disabilities that we know and compiled our own manual and method for transcribing. So we're super excited to share those transcripts with you. If you're listening to this further into the future, maybe they will already be live on healingjustice.org. If you're listening to it close to when this podcast airs, um, then there's still time for you to volunteer as part of our access team. So you can check out that link in the show notes to sign up. Um, even if you're listening to this later, you can sign up and maybe we'll reach out to you for another round of access-related work in the future. But really, really grateful to our volunteers. Y'all, the transcripts are coming. It's going to be glorious. Okay, so as I said before, I met with Phil at his home in Little Haiti, Miami, a.k.a. Smoke Signal Studio, this past March. And as you listen to this conversation, the one resource you might want to have on hand is the Dream Defenders Freedom Papers, which are a gorgeous, gorgeous work of clear vision. And you can find them at dreamdefenders.org slash freedompapers, and that link is also in the show notes. So without further announcements, here's Philip Agnew. So hey, Phil, how you doing? I'm doing great, Kate. How are you? I'm good. It's awesome to be in Smoke Signal Studio and to check out your home slash venue slash recording studio. <laughs> slash hostel. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. It's great. It's um I'm very we are very blessed to have a space that could house all of our different things that we wanted to see. So it's become a really awesome space. Um, it's not easy having the community home. I hear you know a little bit about that, uh-huh. but uh, it's great. It's great to know that people come here and feel good about being here. And can you tell for folks who don't know about Smoke Signals, can you tell just a little overview of like what happens here? Yeah, um, it's a community-based artistic space that myself and my partner, Aja Monet, who's a poet, writer, performer, artist extraordinaire, started in 2015. Uh-huh. And we said, hey, you know, we always wanted a music studio in our home, both of us collective or individually and so collectively. And then, um, and we had an extra room. So we raised some money to do the music studio. Mm-hmm. And uh, we wanted to show the community what we had done with the money that we had raised. So we had a party mm-hmm. and a lot of people came to the party. And so we started doing events in our backyard and those events have grown. Um, a lot of people are now using the studio primarily to record a mixtape for the Dream Defenders right now. And um, there's workshops hosted here. Um, All manner of events are hosted here. Music video shoots are hosted here. And we're doing an artist residency program as well. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. And so you're here. You're recently out of your role at the Dream Defenders. Mm -hmm. Um, And what I would love to talk about today is just like the the whether it's the arc or the roller coaster ride or w- the whirlwind or whatever it is of of your leadership journey over the past right. what seven years mm-hmm. right that's yeah. a long time seven years actually it is it, it is especially in millennial years uh-huh. it is it's a very long time uh-huh. um, yeah it's been an interesting journey for me I'm still trying to figure it all out I think like anyone's leadership or life journey it's I've been a constant evolving force within Dream Defenders, outside of Dream Defenders as myself. And so um, I never expected that I would be the executive director at one point um, for Dream Defenders. I've had a lot of different titles, but I never expected that I would be in the role that I was. And that was because we had uh, another person who's not, you know, hasn't been with the organization for six and a half years, but another person who actually was a a big part of Mm. holding that core together and I never saw myself in that place. And I think like many leaders that I look up to, um, they were either pushed into that position or reluctantly prodded and mm-hmm. guided along. And I think I'm a little bit of both of those. Mm-hmm. So in 2012, yes, Dream Defenders formed out of the response to, to Trayvon Martin being murdered. Right. right? And like, catalyzed so much across the country in terms of what is now is the movement for black lives. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and you really, I mean, you're an incre- we were talking earlier about the word <laughs> spokesperson or, right, or speaker. Right, right, yeah. But became an incredible symbol nationally, like right. speaking about what was happening here in Florida, certainly the work of your entire crew, but with, with some spotlight on you. Yeah. And I'm curious about what was that like then and then also kind of managing that in the years following of like what were some of the strengths to sort of being so visible and then what were some of the like temptations or like downsides of that kind of leadership trajectory well i mean it's intoxicating you know i think it it, no one it would be a mistruth or it would just be a lie for for somebody to say if you're put in that position and people are calling on you and people want to hear what you have to say and people are interested in what you're doing and how your mind is working or how the org is working that that's not a great feeling Mm-hmm. Um, it helped us in a lot of ways, I think. You know, I grew up in the church and then I went to a black college. And I think if you're active in any either one of those, you gather up a little bit of being able to talk in front of people, mm-hmm. you know, or convince people of things. And so I, I had that skill and I was really happy and excited to contribute that to our work. Um, and that's during the first few months of Dream Defenders was a lot of what I did. I used that gift to recruit people to the organization, to bring people in, to tell stories, to, you know, I have a magnetic personality and people just dug being around me. I, it's something I even feel uncomfortable saying, but that's just how it's always been. Mm-hmm. And then um, we hit the TV and things really started to blow up. And, you know, Chris, <laughs> Chris Hayes has me on every week and, you know, we're doing the thing. We were a MSNBC darling really early on. And um, it was really, it really helped us to grow our influence and what people perceived as our power as a local statewide organization. People really started to imagine us as a large force for political power and, and, and social good and all those other things. And it was really great. And I think it is and was really great. I think as much as I would deny it, a lot of what I'm even able gonna be able to do now and in the future, a lot of it was born in those moments and in those months where we were, you know, I was on the 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 Daily Show. I was on. We were on TV all the time. Mm-hmm. The downsides to that are, I wouldn't say more, but they're definitely heavy. Mm-hmm. In that, um, as spokespeople, you get taken out of your really quickly, uh, very quickly, almost immediately. I'll say immediately. As soon as a camera gets put on one person, Mm. there becomes little things that happen between that person and the group that they are a part of. Mm. That if you all haven't all gone in, Mm. almost with the plan, like, hey, y'all, this is what's about to happen. Mm. We need to be prepared and like be ready for it. And I think any team, I think a lot of people have this variety of experience, whether you're the best basketball player on the team or you're the most, you're the best singer in the group. Mm-hmm. But it that 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 started to happen mm-hmm. where, you know, people began to see Dream Defenders as me. Mm-hmm. And me and and me as Dream Defenders. So whatever I did was associated with the whole organization and vice versa. Mm-hmm. So I got I I I said this and I think I coined it. I, re- I really do think this is my, as a leader, you get um, blamed for everything and you get credit for everything. Mm. You get credit for the things you didn't do and you get blamed for the things you didn't do. It's like the, mm. the great balance. And so during that time, I was inextricably linked to Dream Defender. So I wielded a lot of power within the organization, too, because they if they wanted to, they couldn't immediately remove you. Cause you you know I've become a I'm the I'm the executive director by the end I'm a major fundraiser for the organization people see me as the organization and it just created a whole lot of stuff that I really wish we had a no I would have known about or expected and I wish we had known about mm-hmm. and expected way before the other thing that I'll say so outside of the fissures that happen between you and the people that you're organizing with um, is the larger thing that happens which is a part of that fissure, is that you get plucked out. And so you become the person invited to the gatherings and you become the person invited to things, even if you're not the most qualified person, Mm. period, or within the organization to be in that room. Mm -hmm. And so that became really weird. And um, the last thing that I'll say is, as an executive director or a leader in an organization, particularly nonprofit, a group we say we're a revolutionary group with a nonprofit status. Mm-hmm. I'm supposed to be managing 
mm-hmm. the team. Mm-hmm. You can't do that if you're gone all the time. Mm-hmm. And um, you especially can't do that if you're gone all the time to be on a TV show. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like a double um, whammy. And so a lot of those things were really, really, really hard. And then I have my own little insecurities and um, things that also made me not really ready to handle all of that stuff that was going on. Mm. Do you want to say anything else about that? Like what kind of insecurities? Well, I just, you know, I don't like seeing myself on TV. Oh, uh-huh. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I'm I'm still not I'm still not comfortable. You know, it's cool to go in a room and um, like people know you. You're not an invisible person in the room. Everybody wants to know one person when they go in the room. You don't feel alone. Mm-hmm. But it's also overwhelming when you're going around and everybody knows you and um, mm-hmm. people are crying when they meet you or having you sign things for their kids or. Wow. I never felt quite comfortable or maybe insecure maybe wasn't the word, but I never quite felt comfortable being well known for doing community organizing work. Uh And it still doesn't quite make sense to me Uh as a concept. Yeah. What do you think about? I mean, okay, so like the term movement celebrity in a way, like what do you think about that culture of celebrity when it starts showing up in movement space? Like, is that just an inevitability and we ha- we have to manage it or or are, is there a way to do it differently like how would you uh how would you do around again if you had that opportunity right well we've always had movement celebrities mm-hmm. i think mm-hmm. the u.s is a celebrity culture mm-hmm. um we've even made celebrities of people from other countries you know what I'm saying? We've made celebrities of um, Steve Biko. We made celebrities, of course, he's a martyr as well, but we made celebrities of um, Winnie and Nelson. Man- like, we, we're as like, we do that. Like, we'll take people up and, you know, don't, Marcus Garvey. And, you uh-huh. know, we've, we've got a history of, I think, the labor movement to a lesser degree. Mm. And I think that's, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. a different politic, et cetera. Um, but for sure, in the black, movement there always has risen celebrities of some sort mm-hmm. and in, a, in the u.s we're heavily celebrity culture so i think it's almost inevitable mm-hmm. i'm resigned to the fact that it is inevitable either either a, a positive person which i hope to be and i hope i have been is going to be in that role or somebody else is going to do it and you just hate it every single day. You're like, mm-hmm. why is this person getting talked to about what we're doing? Mm-hmm. They can't talk or they, you know, they don't represent us. Mm-hmm. But inevitably, there will be someone who's celebritized in the world. Mm-hmm. If I could do it again, I wouldn't, maybe counter to what you think, I would not have taken such a hard step back. Mm-hmm. If I could do it again with the knowledge that I have now. Mm-hmm. I would have really done done more to try to create opportunities for other people mm-hmm. with the opportunities that I had to be out. Mm-hmm. And I did do that to a degree, and I'm happy about that. But I would have done more of that, and I wouldn't have taken a complete step back because I think that vacuum left space for some people you know, that have occupied it and not filled that vacuum with anything of substance. Mm-hmm. And so, and I mean, when I mean substance, I mean a true left ideology, Hmm. you know, um, using every opportunity that you have on television or on the radio um, or on a documentary to advance a really left ideology, not something that reinforces individualism or reinforces the celebrity or the charismatic leader, but uses that opportunity to put forward a new set of ideas and communicate them very clearly mm-hmm. and make it palatable for a lot of people mm-hmm. and talk and create a new common sense, as we say, right? Mm-hmm. If what I hope to do in the future is to do more of that, if whatever um, visibility I'm able to regain over the next few months or few years, if I ever am able to do that, I want to use it to popularize leftist ideology. And I do think we are in a celebrity culture, especially with young kids. And so I've gone and spoken in classrooms and high school and elementary school, and they won't listen to me. And I, I 
tell them to follow me and they see I have oh, 20,000 followers and they're like, oh, yo, you know, blah, blah, blah. Yo, how you get this many followers? Yo, what do you do? I'm like, I've been talking to you for, for 30 minutes. You know what I do. Hmm. So I've got to, I, 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 there's got to be a way that knowing what I know now, not feeling insecure about my standing within the movement, feeling confident that I could stay politically and like personally sound, that I can engage in that world of 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 notoriety, if not celebrity, of being known. Mm-hmm. That's what I would prefer. I just want to kind of be known, actually, mm-hmm. in order to do what I want to do. Mm-hmm. And then use my gift in that space mm-hmm. um, to inspire and to educate people. Mm-hmm. And then to popularize the correct ideology. Mm-hmm. And if that means that by popularizing that ideology that I diminish in popularity because by nature I've, you know, put put forth I'm cool with that but if I got another chance it would be being really clear about the ideas that I'm putting forward Mm. I think I have a energy and I've written it down now and I feel better about being able to say it I have an energy that I can contribute that maybe it's too large or maybe amorphous to be the leader of a organization Mm -hmm. in the way that people need me to be but also doesn't require me to be this like messiah like figure mm. i can i can with any light shined on me i can be a human being under that light i can be a teacher under that light and maybe create the conditions for there to be a different view of like what a a a spokesperson or a, mm-hmm. i would never use that word of what a communicator in the movement can look like uh-huh. And and you've chosen, I mean, really, like, in the DNA of Dream Defenders is also being in conversation with culture. Mm-hmm. And you, you've you also chosen in building, you know, your home and smoke signals to, like, and, and with your partner to, yep. like, really lean into culture as a vehicle. And I'm wondering if you would just talk a little bit about that, of how you're not just playing in, like, kind of, like, lefty spaces, but you're really trying to engage people at a much broader scale. What yep. What is that commitment, and has it changed for you? Or has it always been kind of with you this whole time? Yep. So, excuse me. What's funny is with Dream Defenders, and I think, you know, many of these statements are my statements, but I'm pretty sure Dream Defenders' current leadership and past will agree with this. Like, there were things that we did at the beginning, me and Steven would get together and do. Steven Pargat. And we would think of different shirts, Mm -hmm. like different slogans. And a lot of that was like, I would say, I don't know what he would say, but I would say a lot of that was like us going to FAMU together, us seeing like party flyers and campaigns get being run on campus. They were definitely very, how do we subvert hip hop or bring, you know, use hip hop lines and tropes to to get people to come to our shit, basically, our stuff. Mm-hmm. That was kind of inherent in how we thought about, that's what we brought to Dream Defenders naturally. It wasn't like uh, something we did out of study. In fact... We actually, I think, started to resist that after a year because we were like, oh, people just think we're the cool group. Mm. They don't think that we're smart or strategic. And so we actually had a period in Dream Defenders where we were kind of like, oh, people just think we're cool. Like, they don't know that we're of substance. They think we're just the cool people with the shirts or the party kids or the tattoos or, like, the hats. And we, I'll say I, was like, oh, I don't want them to think we're just the cool people. So then we went through a whole period of what I would consider rigorous study and like being in relationship with wildfire and momentum and like, oh no, we're gonna prove people that we're not just the cool kids, that we actually know what we're doing, Mm -hmm. we're smart and we're cool. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, hang actually going to Brazil and talking about hegemony and, and how culture is a part of how we see the world and, for me, and I don't, I don't want to say everyone in Dream Defenders. We had some super advanced people in Dream Defenders who probably should have listened to from the beginning, frankly. But for me, it was like, oh, what we do around culture inherently is actually a powerful part of, is a big part of our power and our influence. Mm-hmm. And so, in the last three years, I've witnessed and been a part of what I believe Dream Defenders really starting to own the strong cultural influence that we had created and and have that is a part of us and the culture that we have within our group. Mm-hmm. And then also combine that with 
our uh, our political ideology, et cetera. And so Freedom Papers is an example of like, not a pinnacle, because they're going to go way farther, but that nexus, like an arts project that includes poetry, graphic arts, rap, music, um, you know, uh, videos mm -hmm. that harnesses a strong leftist ideology, but also speaks to the culture of things. And I think that's just a part of our evolution of, um, you know, heart and head, like, oh, we're moving from heart and then we oh, people think we're stupid. So let's just get super smart. And mm. I think it's the balance of a great organization or a great person when you're able to balance those two things. And what comes of that is something that feels really authentic and organic, mm. um, but it's also very particularly geared towards moving people in a political direction. Mm. Yeah, I'm curious. So a couple times you've mentioned like the clear leftist ideology. Yeah. And then this period of study, like I remember that. That's when I met you. When, yeah. when you all came to that training. And um, it's also really impactful for me to hear that like that was the transition because I feel like from where so many of us sat around the country, we were looking at Dream Defenders like y'all are the smartest thing. Like, oh, wow. like, like yeah. to even hear that that would have been a perception or an insecurity. Right. But mm -hmm. um. But in your period of study and with the kind of the lens that you have now for folks who are listening, who might be thinking like, do I have a clear leftist ideology? Oh, like, right. like what would be the, some, some of the books or resources or perspectives that you think are like basic essentials yeah. that were the most impactful for you? Well, I'll, I'll talk about, I think, well, you okay. I'll talk specifically about freedom papers. Uh-huh. And when we say clear leftist ideology, which, right, right, what does it mean? Um, we, everybody might have a different meaning. I think um, for us, it was, or it is, what we've recognized in our current culture is that there is a clear right-wing ideology. And that is um, the individual over everything. So individuals or individual liberty is the thing that must be protected. My right to do whatever I want, no matter who says anything about it. It is that the market money decides all things. And so market-based principles, um, what we say is uh, that um, if it doesn't make money, it doesn't make sense, right? Mm -hmm. Is a common sense logic mm -hmm. that people understand. People understand um, to you know, is the, is the common sense for the masses um, uh, that that men um, are the deciders of all things that are the smartest, the most logic. And and to you know, I'm a victim of this, too. I'm not cured of this illness, but that logic mm. actually, you know, that logic and and man science is actually the the only correct way of of engaging in in, in decision making about how the world should be run. Um and so, and, and the, you know, and that the white male is the pinnacle of all things. And so we're, we're looking at this. This kind of comes out of our understanding that when we go out and say, hey, no police, no prisons, et cetera. When we do it in our circles, it's like arousing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But when you're really organizing and knocking on doors and talking to people, everyday people, even your friends, you can get you get laughed out of the room for some of the things that we think are very normal. Mm -hmm. The things that we believe are that everybody deserves food, water, shelter, education, health care. Um, those are the basic needs that police have never been um, on the side of people, always on the side of the elite and property, um, that uh, people should be able to move about as they see fit. Those are our basic beliefs. Mm -hmm. And so when we, what we realize is that that is our ideology, and it's not a new one, it's not a new one at all, but that for many years, we have stopped talking about those things as like the starting point to everything that we're doing. Um, and not like a pie in the sky, but like the entrance fee is like everybody deserves these basic things. And so uh, that comes through our experiences in Brazil. Um, I mean, for me, Communist Manifesto, mm -hmm. um, Black Jacobins, the studying the Black Panthers and I think the romantic notion of them is is one thing far removed from what we really got from Black Panthers, which is mm. they were able to popularize a set of ideas through praxis and through art. Mm. And all those things were really helped to inform how we see things going now or how we how we're doing things now. Mm. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So for us it is the left 
you know, for your listeners, you know, progressives all the way mm-hmm. to like, I would say Bernie and then to far their left. Um, we believe that we've stopped fighting the ideological war. And that if most of the people in your organization or in your community still believe that um, if it doesn't make money, it doesn't make sense. Or if we're running our organizations in that same way, if it doesn't make Mm. if it doesn't raise philanthropy dollars, then it doesn't make sense. Right. Mm. Um, Or that our leadership models are reflective of another uh, an ideology around gender and sexuality that says, you know, a certain type of identity is the only person that we want in leadership. Um, if the way we're going about the work is still reinforcing the rights ideas, then we're shooting ourselves in the foot. Mm-hmm. And so we've tried to build an organization that reflects our ideas and then put forth this document, um, but not as a policy paper, but as somebody that something that animates people and they can feel that they're a part of this future that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. That is a reflection of these values. Mm-hmm. And in a way, it feels like so we'll put the link to um Freedom Papers in the show notes so that people can find it and read it. Mm-hmm. And the thing that I was just reading today before I came over here is also the Artist Manifesto yes. that y'all have on your website, right? Like making clear another set of ideologies. Yes. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and specifically like like when you're talking about individualism, it seems like that theme, whether we're using political speak or art speak or whatever, yep. is, is consistently running through. So like what is what is... The, the ideology that interrupts that in the artist realm. Yep. Well, the um, the the manifesto, which is on Smoke Signals website, was written um, by Aja. Um, I did some editing, but the work was put forward by Aja. And what we were trying to put, what we're always trying to talk about, is that Western stories about how about the artist process were started being told maybe fifty years ago. And it was like Walt Whitman alone in the forest um, or someone going to a cabin um, and being being by themselves. Or even guys that I like, um, Charles Bukowski in a room, drinking, typing, mm-hmm. um, and just, you know, art as such a solitary process. That's kind of the story that we're heard. Even, even today, you know, um, Kanye, he goes to Wyoming to be by himself and like goes to this remote location to create his magna, you know, his masterpiece. And what we believe and what we've been able to actually in a few minutes talk to people about is that no great art is composed that way. Um, That art is actually a collection of experiences with people, that it is a balance of what happens in your interior world and what you're, you know, what you're feeling in your interior world and that interaction with the exterior world. And so um, a lot of what guides the way that we approach art, we always have. But also now that we're trying to be politically precise in the way that we talk about art is um, that artists have a responsibility because of their particular gift and positionality in the world. Whether that they are storytellers, they're able to communicate complex feelings, um, intuitions, things that go on in the interior world that are unspoken amongst millions of people. Mm -hmm. A songwriter can put those in a few chords and songs and, and bring thousands and millions of people together around that experience. That's an incredible amount of power. Mm. And that is why the capitalist system has used artists. Art has been at the center of the capitalist project almost since the beginning, right? And absolutely in the last 50, 60 years after Madison Avenue, et cetera, after they started to understand even more about the psyche, how they have used um, television, how they have used our graphic art, our poetry, our songs, our dances to popularize their ideas. Mm. And so I forgot how I got here, but what we try to do is illustrate that story, right? That no art is not a solitary endeavor um, done um, by an individual in a cold, dark room somewhere, though great art does come from those experiences. But art actually is is a composition of collective experiences and our individual responses to those collective experiences and a true artist has a as a responsibility we believe to tell um, not just your story but the story of us all 
Mm-hmm. And we talk about that in organizing circle, mm-hmm. the story of the story of self, the story of us. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it is the balance of those things and that we have gone off balance in the last 50 to 60 years, really 70 years, where artists are now so skewed towards the eye, mm-hmm. right? This is what I feel. This is all I see. This is what I believe. Um, and there has to be some sort of reckoning and balance with that. And so the artist manifesto is a part of us reclaiming our art at, at its most revolutionary. We believe artists should be able to create and do what they want. Mm-hmm. That's the world that we want to live in. Just as I believe that money should not be the decider of all things in our place in society and what we're able to do. That's the world we're aspiring for. Mm-hmm. In order to get that world, we are looking to find common cause and to work with artists who see their role as, um, we say, Tony K. Bambara says, a writer's duty, the duty of a writer is to make revolution irresistible. Mm-hmm. We say the, the, the duty of an artist mm-hmm. is to make revolution irresistible. We're trying to find common cause with artists that believe that. Um, some people say that's propaganda, right? Some people say, hey, Artists trying to convince people of a certain thing um, are presenting propaganda. Me and Aja don't agree on all points of this, so let me be clear. But I do want to create propaganda. Hmm. We've been fed right-wing propaganda, willfully and unwillingly, to the point of us selling it ourselves Hmm. for 70, 80, 90 years. It's time to balance it. And maybe once we've balanced the scales, then we can get to some sort of medium point. But until then, we need people who are, frankly, aggressive and unabashedly creating art um, that tells a different story about how we are should be in relationship with each other, to the land, um, and to ourselves. Hey, everybody. It's Kate. I'm just hopping in here to... Uh, remind you that you can access the different ways to interact with this community and help sustain this podcast financially through our Patreon. So Patreon is a platform that allows people to give at a monthly level, but also get membership benefits that relate to their gift. So those of us coming out of movement space and building membership-based organizations, it's just like any other monthly pledge that you would give to support work that you care about. But we are also adding on some benefits and incentives for people who are our sustainers because this isn't a physical space, right? This is a virtual space. So we're trying to build out more kind of member organization space for people who are hanging out with us to find each other, to go deeper with the learning, to talk about the practices, to meet other practitioners, Um, and also for people with access to money and class privilege to redistribute some of that access. And in turn, at that redistribution level, we give um, 15% of what's raised there back to healing justice grassroots groups that are less visible and less resourced than we are. So there's a bunch of different levels on the Patreon. You can check it out at patreon.com slash healingjustice. And the most poppin' level right now is our book club, which we just launched last month in May 2019. So a couple weeks ago when we launched, we had only a few people. Now we have over 100 people in book club. Um, That is so fun. We have people all over the world and folks in the Patreon are already self-organizing to find people near them with whom they're going to read Pleasure Activism by Adrienne Marie Brown and some incredible contributors. So we're partnered with AK Press to host this book club. AK has given us a deep discount for our members, but even if you don't join book club, you can go to akpress.org and use the promo code podcast for 15% off any book purchases from this incredible movement publisher. So go use that code at akpress.org for 15% off. The code is podcast. And if you choose to join book club, You'll get in the month of June a discussion guide that you can use to gather people locally to discuss the book if you want to. Um, And you'll also get access to a virtual hangout space 
in August, where we'll be hanging with Adrienne Marie Brown and Amita Swadheen, who spoke on the podcast episode we did with Adrienne about pleasure activism. Um, and Monique Tula, who's another contributor, will also be joining us uh, this August. So if you're interested in those things, join us for book club, patreon.com slash healingjustice. And while you're there, check out the other levels and see if there's a way you'd like to be involved. If giving financially is not an option for you, but you want to do something in reciprocity for this podcast, it is so incredible when people share this work, share it with your friends, rate and review in whatever platform you're listening. Um, we have over 430 reviews in Apple Podcasts right now. We know that over 10,000 of you listen every week. We would love, love, love if you could go in on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you're listening, give us a review. It really helps us when we're making the case uh, for this project to be supported, um, either technically or through funding. It helps show uh, the impact that it's making. So join us in leaving a review. And thank you so much for being with us. Let's get back to the juice and keep talking to Philip. So I'm curious as you, well, one thing I want to say is just for people who are listening, like it's a lot of our folks are also politicized healers and people who are really engaging around healing. Mm -hmm. And this, this individualism piece is, is being replicated a thousand percent yes. in, the, in the areas of healing and mm -hmm. wellness and all of that too. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that interruption around individualism and, and, and self-branding that we were talking yeah. about earlier is super medicine for what mm -hmm. we need because we can't like movement building can't happen with a bunch of individual brands <laughs> right or, or the conversation around self-help and uh -huh. self-care uh -huh. right at a point where um for self-help particularly at a point where capitalism in our generation is almost at its zenith like the 70s and the 80s is when we also see a whole the tony robbins of the world etc ascend to like the heights of of what and so you have to wonder that when capitalism is reaching a point where it had not been seen like that before during the reagan years why is it the response to that the 80s and the 90s this big self-help portion and that and i think even the conversation with self-care can become a little bit perverse mm -hmm. um, because what it does is tells a story that if you fix your response to what the world is doing to you, yeah. then everything will be all right. Yeah. And so we've got to interrupt that conversation. And I'm, I'm not going to lie. I come, I also bring a little baggage around self-help. I'm definitely not the first person to come to, to talk to about, Hey, taking a break and not feeling guilty about it or, mm -hmm. you know, so, but, or self-care rather, particularly around self-help. I think we've got to examine just at the center of that. What is that saying? That the self is the problem. Mm -hmm. um, even psychiatry tells us the, the you know, a, a, something that people can get a doctorate in um, is a school of thought based on the premise that the problem is within you, either in some sort of repressed memory or something that happened in your childhood and or in your response or some sort of genetic response to the outside world. And there's not enough conversation about our work, our the work that we should be doing and the organizations that we should be building may not be able to hold all of the mental and physical and genetic trauma that each one of our members holds. But we've got to find a, work, a way for us to talk about our organizations actually as central parts to fighting the system that creates the mental health problems that we're seeing in our people. Mm. And that mental health, that if someone is depressed, it's not just because they have an imbalance in the norepinephrine and the serotonin in their brain, but that in many ways, it's a response to a world that creates people like this yeah that's right well i'm thinking about the balance between like that kind of that clarity of that lens and and being part of building organization but then also like the celebrity culture piece we were talking about earlier where there's this inevitable part where you're being sort of spotlighted as an individual even mm -hmm. though what you might be saying might be con constantly contradicting that yeah still being consumed in that way mm -hmm. um 
I'm curious about, I mean, one of the, one of the public things that I don't know the story behind is that you went through a period of changing your name. Right. Yeah. What, what, what was that related to any of these themes or what was this, that story? No, um, the story, the, the simplest from A to B part of the story is I had a dream on my 30th birthday. And in that dream, people were calling me this other name, mm-hmm. which was Umi at the time. And um, and I have been asking in my spirit, hey, I wanted a new name. I'd always wanted to change my name because I still, even at 30, looked up to like uh, uh, Stokely Carmichael and Malcolm and other people who some ancestor gave them a new name. And I was like, I want one. <laughs> and I had a dream. And that's it, the dream was real. And that's what happened. Yeah. I think in re- and then two years later, I went back to my name. So I'm, you know, I'm Philip. I needed, in retrospect, I needed something to signal to people that I was evolving and not going to be the person that people um, thought I was supposed to be or knew me to be or wanted me to be or saw me as. Mm. I had just gotten with Aja, Mm -hmm. and I think it was just a whole period turning 30, new relationship, which more or less, I think people didn't imagine that I would be in a relationship or I, I imagine that people didn't imagine and I just needed a whole kind of mm-hmm. rebrand, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and and re- rebrand sounds facetious, but it's uh, it's. Um, I, I think I, my my spirit wanted to really signal to people that I was becoming a different person and I was evolving, and I wanted that to be obvious to people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm whether I made myself or that dream happened. I'm now writing my dreams down, which is interesting. But mm-hmm. whether I did it myself or an, another force did it, I had that dream. Mm-hmm. And so I took on that name. And then at some point, the name started to sound weird to me. And I joke about it now, but I knew my friends, no one would accept me changing my name a third time. So I just went back to home base. <laughs> it, like a symbol, it just wouldn't work. So I went back to home base. And I was like, you know, Philip worked for a lot of time. Yeah. And I came back to me yeah. in, a, in, a, in a lot of ways. And so I'm always in a constant state of evolution. And um, so that's that's that. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, I think Dream Defenders is also is also an organism, organism. You know, that is constantly evolving and shifting and becoming a new thing. And um, I'm really happy where Dream Defenders is and where it's about to go. Up until Andy. <laughs> um, we had a uh, all woman leadership team for about yes. uh I guess they had three or four months uh-huh. um before before Andy disrupted it all. That's um, our mutual <laughs> friend who is literally as we speak driving down to Miami to move from New York where his going away party was at my house. Yeah. And to come down to Miami work at Dream Defenders just yep. to let y'all in on what we're talking about. Uh-huh. Uh, welcome to Miami, Andy. Um but but um where Dream Defenders is going to go is going to continue to grow. And you know what? One thing that I've tried to um, not judge too much, because, you know, I think about everything too much. But one thing I've been saying for like three, four years is that we survived. Mm -hmm. And on one end, when I'm my most cynical, I'm like, what kind of bar is that to set? for for an organization that you survived, especially a revolutionary organization that wants to continue to grow and be like more powerful. And so I think there's credence to that being the bar. On the other hand, the answer to that question to me is that there are so many organizations like ours that started in the same year or the year after or three years after that, are, that no longer exist mm-hmm. and haven't been able to make it through, you know, the new version of Quantel Pro or um, internal strife or egos or funding streams or mm-hmm. all manner of things that can spell doom for organization or you have a leader within the organization who commits some sort of um, assault. I mean, like, mm-hmm. and we haven't been without um, some of those issues. But the point is that Dream Defenders is state and we're bigger for sure and stronger absolutely than we were when we started. So I'm really happy about that and I think the same for me, connected and disconnected as well. Mm-hmm. That um, you know, I, I didn't sign up to be executive director. I don't think I should have been, um, and that's not being um, deprecating. It's just you know, I don't think I should have been. 
Mm-hmm. Um, we we survived. I learned on the job. I did my job as well as I could in that moment. Mm-hmm. And I'm now taking those experiences and I think I have something to contribute to other people who are going to engage in this work. Mm-hmm. Well, I hope in the future you know, for this show, we'll get an opportunity to talk with some of the people who are still at Dream Defenders. And then also thinking about kind of your transition now that you're out of that kind of um, structural visibility Mm -hmm. and and laying a little bit low, digesting, figuring out what's next. Like, Mm -hmm. I'm also thinking about how do we not drop you? Like, Mm -hmm. um, as you shift in your relationship, because that's not a that's not a lesson just about you, but that's a lesson about how we hold our, le- how we hold leadership and how we hold each other in general. Yeah. So, um, any like learnings of your kind of exit process so far, or any requests that you have of how do, yeah, how do we not drop our folks that have been under a lot of pressure, and then and then shift that up. Right. Well, I think well, one, uh, I do have to say I'm still involved with the movement for Black Lives mm-hmm. and working with the cultural team there, and I bring that up because um, that's been the product of work from that collective of people to hold me to be like, hey, you know, you got a little bit more time, and we we really think you could be useful here, and uh, you made some commitments, so. Uh, you know, and so I want to mention that because I think it's been helpful. It's been helpful to feel connected in a way somewhere, knowing that we had decided that I would not be connected to Dream Defenders. So it's been that's been a big part of, you know, finding some small little thing I can contribute to mm-hmm. that's moving the mo- helping to move the movement forward mm-hmm. has felt good. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think we and I've I've learned this too. We've got to find a way to see the movement in. Um, and as robust as it should be and can be and that people can serve different roles at different times. Mm-hmm. And it's not a linear thing. I think that's another part of the, the corporate structure that we take on, that it's a very linear, like you start here, you go to there, then the corner office, and then you're up here. And then once you're done, it's like, you know, are you going to start something new or are you mm-hmm. retired, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think I'm trying to figure out you know, I think there's a more of a cycle. There, there, there should be. There, we should think of it more as an organism, and there should be more cyclical thinking about how we do leadership within our organizations um, when people transition out. Mm-hmm. Um, one example, which is very counterintuitive, especially with my last statement, is like Steve Jobs. Mm-hmm. And I know this is this is very, but I don't know everything about this story. But I, I do think there are a lot of um, corporations that recognize this sometimes better than us. And what do I mean? He got kicked out of his company. Um, and um, for, for just reasons at the time, they're like, yo, you're fucking up. You got to go, you know? Um, and then he came back. Very general, generalized version of the story. Um, but what I think is we're, we're not used to the teacher becoming the student and then for a little while, then the stu- student tapping in and becoming the teacher or the teacher becoming the principal and then becoming a student. That's just like causes too many glitches in our minds. Like, you know, you're the pr- pr- you shouldn't. How are you now in my class? Mm-hmm. And I think I'm interested in trying to see really how that how that dynamic begins to work. I don't think it's automatic that the next thing I'll do, I'll be the leader of mm-hmm. um, just because I was a leader in this. I'm, I want to be a student now. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm because if I want to be a teacher, I got to be a student right now. And that's one thing I'm reflecting on. I've been calling people and they're like, oh, you, you, you know, are you going to do this? I got so much to learn from you. Well, I, I'm actually calling you because I want to sit at your feet for a little while and learn kind of what you've been doing. Oh, OK, that's cool. That's refreshing. And I think that's how we've got to I think removing that pressure from anybody who transitioned from any role that the next thing you do mm. is going to be higher up the hierarchical ladder or bigger than what you did before yeah. or um, just more more impressive and a bigger splash or like the newest thing that ever happened because that's pressure that I put on myself and I think other people feel maybe unconsciously. Yeah. And um, us starting to remove that and saying, all right, where, where, how do you feel that you can be fulfilled and you can be most useful um, is a better way of thinking about it 
Um, because I think that fear causes people never to leave places. Mm. So you're like, this is it for me. Mm-hmm. You know, it'd be so embarrassing if I wind up being an organizer for Dream Defenders in two years. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. It's like people would be like, what? No, that's a demotion. Mm-hmm. And I think we've got to rethink how we think of transitions, how we think of evolutions, resignations, you know, lateral moves or, you know, I think last thing really quickly, I do think it would have been cool. We didn't do it. I don't know if it'll ever happen, but it would have been cool if I had to become communications director for Dream Defenders Mm -hmm. at some point Mm -hmm. when we recognized that that probably was a better role for me or or like cultural guy, you know, (laughs) because Steve was director of communications and was doing great and Naila's doing great. So it's not about them, but, you know, that might have been cool. Like, hey, y'all, Phil's no longer the executive director. Mm -hmm. He's going to be moving to this role. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, Jonelle's going to be ED for the next two years, you know? Mm -hmm. That would have blown people's minds, but Mm -hmm. me being in some of those meetings, I was like, I should probably Mm. not be this person right now. Mm. You know, and I think that willingness to recognize that and be fluid in that um, probably would do all of us a lot lot of good. Mm. It it brings to mind for me, like, a lot of people who write into this show talking about their experiences is... um, like folks who feel like exactly what you're describing, that pressure that we can't be cyclical and move between roles. And a lot of folks who say like, well, I was organizing or I was an activist, but I hit, you know, a life change happens or it's time to shift up the role or, you know, a mental, uh, like a a mental health issue happens or you have to go care give for a family member or chronic illness or disability happens, right? Like, changes happen in our lives and if we want to hold people like when you talk about the movement being broader yeah if we want our movements to be big enough to win it means that people at all different phases of life and leadership and self-reflection can be in it continuously and that continuously doesn't mean that hierarchical ascension and just work until you die right 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 (laughs) Yeah. yeah yeah i think that would do a lot of good is just like to affirm to folks listening like as you shift through, like, the work that you're doing right now, Philip, sitting here and, like, reflecting and chilling out for a minute. And, like, you're like, I got to finish up this podcast because I'm on dinner tonight. <laughs> right? Like, that work is valuable to the movement. Mm-hmm. Like, we need you to do that. We don't need you to stay in visibility until you snap. Right. Like, yeah. that's actually yeah. not what we need. Right. Right. Or become a Republican. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I just feel grateful to be sort of like joining you in this moment. That's like a a transitional moment and um and I even feel like I want to re- I want to resist the urge to ask like what's coming next because that's <laughs> what we've been talking about, you yep, know. Yeah. Um but to know that you're still engaged in some movement home yep. with movement for black lives, to know that you're reflecting, digesting and and hosting this awesome space here at Smoke Signals is like more than enough. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And I've got, you know, I'm resisting the temptation not to say what I'm doing next, but to to push it. Uh-huh. I want it to come to me, and um, I'm really happy. I'm glad that we got to have this talk. It's helped me to co- even coalesce around some ideas for writing for me mm. um, and to say, oh, this is something I think I can write about. Um, mm. You know, I've talked myself into thinking I've got a new idea, so <laughs> I'm going to write it down and see if uh, anybody else wrote about it. But I really appreciate the time, and the energy that you've always brought into the spaces that I've been in with you. Mm. And um, yeah, and gray hair. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Hey, I think that's my favorite way that an interview has ever ended with getting a compliment on my hair, which actually when I received the compliment was brown with a little streak of blue, but now it's purple. So stay tuned on Instagram for the hair updates. Um, But you just heard a conversation between Philip Agnew and me, Kate Warning. If you found this resource useful, please join us with your support on patreon.com slash healingjustice or leave us a rating and review in whatever platform you're listening. Share on social media, share it with your friends. You can download the corresponding practice that if you're listening right when this comes out, will come out next week. Um, And this practice is inspired by Philip. It is called Claiming Our Ideology. And it's about developing and claiming our vision. 
Um, you heard in this episode Phil talking about how a true leftist ideology begins at a starting place of the everyone's basic needs deserve to be met and that's, that's not a pie-in-the-sky idea. And so we're going to use the Dream Defenders Freedom Papers as an example and hear a reading of an original poem by Philip and talk a little bit about what it takes to develop your own ideology. Links are in the show notes to find our email list, which you can also find at healingjustice.org. You can get a free Healing Justice zine by uh, signing up and downloading and printing and folding yourself. We've got instructions for the folding for you on our Instagram. And also find us on social media. So stay in touch. We're sharing conversation prompts and beautiful stuff all the time. So come talk to us. This episode was edited by Jacob White and mixed and produced by Zach Meyer at The Coal Room. Thank you for your commitment to building movements that liberate all of us. Hear you next week, y'all.